Well, thank you, Nikki. Let's go to the Lord and pray for her. Oh God, we thank you so much for your sovereign grace. Um, just your uh, beautiful, wonderful way that you um, call people to yourself um, through the gospel. And we thank you, O oh Lord, for calling Nikki, uh, giving her a new heart, a heart of flesh that would melt before the cross of Christ. We thank you for the word of God sown in her that has produced a harvest of righteousness, a heart that desires and longs for you and to make much of you. We thank you for every trial and <clears throat> difficulty and um, challenge in our life. We know that you cause all these things to work for the good, the good being that she would conform to Christ, that she would be sanctified, set apart, that she would depend upon you and rely not on herself but on Christ so that her singular boast in life would be on the cross of Jesus Christ. We thank you for the detailed way, Lord, you use the word, her family, her life trials to grow her in the faith. And we are confident with her that he who began a good work will carry it indeed unto completion. Lord, we do pray for our brother Chris. We thank you, O Lord, for protecting him during that accident. And we also pray for her relatives. We pray that you would grant them same grace that you have given to Nikki and to all of us. O Lord, we pray that you would send workers into their lives. Send men and women bearing the good news of the gospel who would humbly but boldly share the full counsel of God. And Lord, that you would sovereignly work through the Holy Spirit in their hearts. And Lord, you would open their eyes to see the beauty of Christ and the wretchedness of their own state. And they would... Uh, leap out at you, O God. They would cling to the cross. They would reach out and cry out for salvation. And, O Lord, we pray that you would save them. You would save Chris and also her relatives. We also pray for her personal walk, O Lord, that she would take full ownership of her own sanctification by reading of the Word, meditating on it day and night, by studying Scripture in depth and memorizing the Word of God, sowing it in her heart that she would be a full woman of God so that whether she's at home, in her community, or in the world, Lord, you would use her to bring much glory to yourself, use her to spread the good news of the gospel, and you would use her, her husband, and her family, all for your purposes. Lord, we thank you, God, for um, just a wonderful way you work in our lives, and that we can give such testimonies, hear them, and praise you together. Thank you, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, Nikki, thank you so very much. Um, can't find you. Okay, okay. Thank you so very much for your testimony. We thank God for Hyun and your husband and yourself. And we, again, it's this all the time, but that's the bottom of our hearts. Look forward to just ministering together here and who knows where for years, maybe a lifetime together. Well, as our elder Bob shared, we just came back from a two-night, three-day elders and staff retreat. You might wonder, what do we do with these staff retreats? You guys just go around and play basketball or something, play ping pong or something. What do you guys really do? Well, just a brief uh, overview of our the events of our weekend. Thursday night, we got together, had a real good meal. Right, got to start off with a good meal because what comes ahead is very painful. We uh, evaluate one another. We have our wives ask uh, in our pastor's corner. We have our wives answer those questions and we go through those 
answers and we start by evaluating my strengths uh, and then he goes through my weaknesses and he had a lot of them this year. <laughs> They're interesting. A lot of weaknesses and that's good. You know, it's so good that we do that because our concern is the believer's sanctification and the believer's sanctification begins with us, with our own lives. And we, the way for us to be sanctified is for us to know our weaknesses, our sinfulness, our shortcomings, our self-deceptions. So it was a good way for Bob to point out areas in my life that sorely need growth, sorely need God's grace. He talked about my opportunities that I have as a husband, as a father, as a pastor, as a Christian. And then Bob talked to me about the threats that are in my life that threaten my walk with Christ, threaten my ministry, threaten my family. That's a good time. I went, and then it was Bob's turn. Since he has a long list for, him, for me, I went right back at him. So I went, went through his strengths and went through his weaknesses and opportunities and threats. And then we uh, prayed together. And we highlighted the weaknesses, even in our culture, in our elder culture, uh, as Bob and I, in our relationship, that we lack prayer. We lack dependence upon God. We lack trust in Him. We're both more type A personalities. We're more martyrs than Mary. We need to repent and pray and ask God that we'll be more like Mary. So we spent time praying for one another and praying together. And then we went over our, our, our staff uh, leaders, our, our interns, and went over each of them and evaluated them, their strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. And then we went over each flock shepherd, the shepherds that are leading over you, so that we know what their strengths and weaknesses are, and we prayed for them. And then we went over... Um, the SWAT evaluation that we did, all the flock shepherds and ministry leaders gathered together November 19th, spent six hours evaluating our church, confronting ourselves, and then we prayed over those and then made some key decisions in light of those uh, evaluations. We ended that night, we began the night with extended prayer, we ended that night with extended prayer, and the next morning we got up to evaluate our budget, and God has been really good to us, providing for all of our needs, uh, making a schedule for 2006, uh, making some firm decisions on ministry. Friday night, uh, the staff joined us and we had, went through each ministry. There was like 50, 60 ministries here at Cornerstone. We went through each one, evaluated the leadership, evaluated the ministry, and uh, I think we met from Friday night 7 till one in the morning, and then we woke up 6.30 in the morning and went at it uh, uh, for four or five hours and meet, uh, more, more, more time together evaluating our ministries. And so, so with a heart of joy, heart of gratitude, really a heart full of thanks that we'll present um, State of the Church to all of you next week. And we're going to extend it. You know, last, week, last year it went like two hours, and it was just too much, and sort of shorter time. So we're going to break it up to two weeks, so next two weeks we'll have State of the Church during second hour. Please be in prayer for us and look forward to fellowshipping together. Um, just thanking God over what God has done uh, this past year. Well, today we're going to study John 3.16 through 21. Um, you know, people ask me to come and speak at their churches or fellowship groups or campus ministries. and I have a rotation of sermons that I love to give. I believe these are sermons that are foundational to the Christian faith, sermons that have impacted me and really shaped who I am as a, as a Christian, husband and father, as a pastor. You know, you, you guys know these sermons. I give them several times throughout, you know, 
Cornerstone History. If you, if you stay here a while, you'll hear all these sermons eventually. You know, Psalm 19, Revelation 2, uh, Psalm 1, uh, Matthew 26, Christ's crucifixion, Peter's pride, Matthew 26, so on. John 3.16, I preached it in 2001 here at Cornerstone, and I haven't preached it yet again here. Last time I preached it was in Czech Republic. I preached this, this sermon to non-believers in Czech, and they were so responsive. And more and more as I go out, if I find this sermon close to my heart and shaping uh, my heart and coming into the rotation of sermons that I preach to others. So I thought it would be a great opportunity for us to go back. And we studied this four years ago and consider this rich passage on Christ's love for all of us, God's love for you and I. And I don't know about you guys, maybe it's because of my role as a father, or husband, or a pastor, but because I'm so focused on ministry, so focused on others, that I often forget that God loves me. I don't know if you can uh, identify with that at all. I forget that God loves me. That I forget when I read the Bible, it's from God who loves me. I forget when I sing to God, that I'm singing to God who loves me. I forget all the time. I, I neglect the simple truth that when I'm praying to God, I'm not just praying to a king, lord, and master. I'm praying to a sovereign king who knows intimately my thoughts, my desires, my needs, and he has personal love for me. And it's, it's an awe-inspiring thing. It's a truth that moves the heart of little ones, uh, two-year-old, three-year-old, and it moves the heart of hearts of eminent theologians, eminent scholars, eminent uh, teachers of the Word of God. Karl Barth, a famed theologian, you know, he has in some areas of his life questionable theology, but he got this, this part right. In his first uh, teaching session in the United States, some, a student asked him, what is the greatest truth in the Bible to you? And they're waiting for some deep, scholarly, uh, profound answer. And his response was, Jesus loves me, this I know. The Bible tells me so. Here is a man you know, who is steeped in scholarship, steeped in original languages. And he says, for me, the greatest truth is that God loves me. And the Bible tells me that God loves me. J.I. Packer said in Knowing God, quote, what matters supremely in my life is that God loves me. I am graven on the palms of His hands. I am never out of His mind. All my knowledge of Him depends on His sustained initiative of knowing me. I know Him because He first loves me, loved me and continues to love me. There is no moment when his eye is off me or his attention is distracted from me, and no moment when his care falters, there is unspeakable comfort in knowing that God is constantly taking knowledge of me and watching over me in love. There is tremendous relief in knowing that his love is utterly realistic, based at every moment on prior knowledge of the worst about me so that no discovery can now disillusion him about me in the way I am so often disillusioned about myself, end quote. I mean, that's a quote worth memorizing. His love for us is utterly realistic, based at every point on prior knowledge at the, of the very worst of me. Though I am disillusioned about myself, 
His love, and He is never disillusioned about us. From God's other known attributes, we may learn much about His love. Because of who God is, it highlights the intensity, the depth, the breadth, the width of God's love towards us. <coughs> for, instance, for instance, because He is self-existing, because He is eternal, we know that His love had no beginning. He was always loved, and He always loved us. Because His love is eternal, because He is eternal, His love has no end. It is an unexhaustible love. He is infinite, therefore His love has no limit. Because he, he is holy, His love is pure and righteous. Because He is immense, His love is an incomprehensible, vast, bottomless sea, before which we kneel in joyful silence, and from which the loftiest eloquence retreats confused and abashed. Let me read to you what A.W. Tozer said, God's love is measureless. No, it is more. It is boundless. It has no bounds because it is not a thing but a facet of the essential nature of God. His love is something He is and because He is infinite, that love can enfold the whole created world in itself and have room for 10,000 worlds besides. End quote. I like what Tony Campolo said. That's a little sentimental, a little trite, but makes a good point. He said, God carries your picture in his wallet. I, I understand. It's kind of trivial. It's kind of, you know, elementary, but that's nice. That's neat. You know, God carries my picture. God says, you want to see James Shin, right? You want to see my children? He carries our picture. Now, let's not carry that too far, but God loves you and I. It is unthinkable to me that I should forget this truth. And it should be unthinkable for you, for you to neglect this truth. Because the love of God is one of the grandest themes of the scriptures. I mean, you can't study, you can't read the Bible and not run into God's love. Deuteronomy 7, 7 and 8, God said to Israel, The Lord did not set His affection on you. The Lord did not choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath He swore to your forefathers that He redeemed you today from the land of sl slavery. <coughs> Psalm 103.13 As a father has compassion on his own children, so Yahweh has compassion on those who fear Him. Jeremiah 31.3 The Lord appeared to us in the past and He said, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with an everlasting loving kindness. To know love, to understand what love is, is to understand God. For God is love. Such a simple idea. But there is an immensity, profundity in the meaning of those words that is beyond our comprehension. Beyond describing with mere words. It's the idea of reductionism. Our words reduce this concept just by articulating it. It is beyond our words. It is impossible to fully, to fully fathom the height, the depth, the width, the breadth of God, the love of God while we are in these mortal frames. But we ought to try. We must attempt. 
Though it is impossible a task, many men have tried. Samuel Trevor Francis, the great hymn writer, wrote, Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured. How can I describe it? It's boundless. It is free. It is rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. Underneath me, all around me, is the current of His love, leaning onward, leading homeward to that glorious rest above. Or that hymn, Love of God. We have to add this hymn to our, 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 our singing list, song list. Uh, the third stanza is a rich testament of God's love, having a very unusual testimony. That third stanza was originally written by a Jewish rabbi in Arabic, and then it was found in, an, in, in the current form in an insane asylum. A patient, apparently during times of sanity, had memorized this poem in Arabic and wrote it and revised it. And in that revised form, the hymn writer made it into a song that Christians sing. The third stanza goes, The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. Oh, love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong. It shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies a parchment made, were every blade of grass on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Not could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. They're all saying, it is impossible for mere men to fathom and articulate God's love and God's love to us. Well, to understand God's love, to see it articulated the best, we need to go to the Word of God. We need to go to the Scriptures. (coughs) And of the many texts of the Bible that proclaim about God's love, you agree with me that John 3.16 stands head and above the rest. So much so, even non-believers know John 3.16. So much so, you go to a USC game, there will be a guy on a clown afro with a, sign that holds, with a sign that says John 3.16. You go to a World Series game, you go to a basketball game, there's some, some guy you know, holding a sign, John 3.16. We so want the world to understand and read this passage because it stands head and shoulders above all the rest in terms of describing God's love. This wonderful verse has been justly called by Luther the Bible in miniature. Bible in miniature. Now before we go on, we must deal with the interpretive issue in verses 16 to 21. There is considerable debate about this passage. If Jesus ended his statement in verse 15 or verse 21... Many believe verses 10 through 21 are all the words of Christ. And especially 16 through 21, that's the debated part of the passage. And most of your Bibles would have it in red, indicating they are the words of Christ. And most people believe that. Some believe, as I do, that 16 to 21 was penned by the Apostle John, was given by John, written by John. Throughout the Gospel of John, 
John makes comments. John makes a commentary on the life of Christ. John adds asides or notes to explain and to declare God's truth. Like John 1.1 is a great aside, a great commentary on the origin of Christ, origin of Christ's incarnation. I believe, <coughs> as some do, that verses 16-21 are John's words and not the words of Christ. First of all, the context lends itself to that. The flow of the passage fits if they are John's words. And the expression, the one and only Son, Jesus never used that term to describe Himself. Jesus never did that. But the Apostle John did that several times in the Gospel of John. John 1.14, that's definitely John the Apostle. 1.18, he said that. Uh, 1 John 4.19, John used that description to, to the title Christ. Furthermore, verses 19-21 through 21 directly parallel... John chapter 1. So I believe these are the words of John, not, not Christ. Now, on, on the one hand, it's not important because regardless, it's the word of God. <coughs> it is inspired and it's truth, it's authoritative. But it's an interpretive issue because if Jesus is saying, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, if He is saying that in the presence of Nicodemus, He's pointing to His incarnation. Right? He's pointing to giving as God gave, so here I am. But if John is saying this, and John is saying, for God so loved the world that He gave, that past, simple past tense, love, simple past tense gave, is pointing not to His incarnation, but pointing to what? The cross. Right? Because John is writing post-resurrection. And he's describing, Jesus said, He'll be lifted up. In the Old Testament, Moses lifted up a serpent to rescue Israelites. And the Son of Man will be lifted up. And John thinks back, exactly. I remember when Jesus was lifted up. I was there and saw Him in my own eyes. And He says, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. And that giving was not at the incarnation of Christ. That giving was once for all on the cross, on Calvary, on Golgotha, when God gave His Son to die. So it highlights that simple interpretive issue, what verse 16 is pointing to, as John intended it, the cross of Jesus Christ. Well, the question is then, why would God give His only Son as a sacrifice? To save a sinful, guilty race of men, it's like a diamond, it's like a precious jewel. And to fully understand and fully appreciate this diamond, we want to look at it from five separate angles. Right? We want to get some mega lights on it and look at it from five different angles. We want to look at five truths about the gift of God given to us in Christ. Five truths. First is motivation. <coughs> First is motivation and then value, object, purpose, and rejection. Motivation, value, object, purpose, and the rejection of God's gift to the world. To the world. Let's first look at the motivation of God in giving us this gift. Verse 16. Perhaps no part of this passage is so deeply important as the first six words of verse 16. For God so loved the world. Note that first word, for... That one word tells us that Christ did not die 
so that he might love man. No, his love <coughs> was the motivation behind his gift. He died because he loved man, Romans 5.8. Because God loved the world, he gave. God's love came first. He didn't die to love the world. He died because he loved the world. And note the third word, so. The Greek construction behind the three words, so love that, emphasizes the sheer intensity of God's love. The love spoken here is that mighty compassion with which God regards the whole race of mankind. God's love was so great. It was so deep. It was so true that He went to the heights. It was so deep that He went to the highest and He gave His one and only Son. And then we'll go to the value of God's gift. Consider the value of this gift that God gave. Think of the sacred person whom the whom the great Father gave in order that He might demonstrate His love to us. God so loved the world that He gave what? Who did He give? He gave His own one and only Son. The gift was His only begotten Son, His beloved Son in whom He was well pleased. When God gave us His Son, what more could He give? Was there a greatest treasure, greatest prize? Was there a greatest possession in the throne room of God that He could give above His one and only Son? The answer is a declarative no. It is an inestimable gift, the value of this gift. Now all the fathers here, consider how much you love your children, how much you love your child. Could you give them up as a substitute to bear the punishment of your worst enemy. Just think about that. Just consider that thought. I mean, fathers, you know, you're, you're at that birth giving room, and and, the, and you're, you're the only one that's truly happy in a sense because you're we're without pain. The doctors are you know busy, nurses are harassed, your wife is just like you know in pain, and you hold that child in your arm, and instantly, when mom is different because. The baby's growing in a room of the father for the first time. We hold that child in our arms and the world changes. A paradigm shift. Everything in life, the perspective changes. All of a sudden you feel vulnerable. Anything would happen to this child, it would hurt you so much. There would be so much pain. Your role is to protect this child. That's your role as a father. And the father who's there, who loves his son, is there to protect his son, gives him over to die for his worst enemies. He did not give his son, as we might, to some profession, to some pursuit in life. No, he gave his son to die a cruel death for his worst enemies. <coughs> to a guilty, undeserving, ungrateful race of people. Again, that love that gave is past. Simple past tense. Pointing to, that, pointing to the fact that it happened. Right? It's a, a historical event. God demonstrated His love for us. And that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. Therefore, we need not, we must not, we cannot ever doubt God's love for us. 
We can't look at our circumstances. We can't look at our trials. Look at our personal struggles. Look at whatever problems we're facing and ask, Does God, God, do you love me? Do you care for me? Away with such vain thoughts. We look at the cross and that demonstrates once for us. Period. That God loved and loves us. John fifteen thirteen. Greater love has no one than this. That He laid down His life for His friends. Ah, oh, but Christ adds later that He lays down for His enemies. Right? God adds later in the Romans that while we're yet sinners, He died for us. So His love is even greater. <coughs> First John 3.16 This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down His life for us. First John 4.9 This is how God showed His love among us. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. We looked at motivation. We looked at value. Let's look at the object of God's love. The object of God's love. The idea that God loves the world is a whole new idea to the listeners here, or the first readers of the Gospel of John. A radical departure from the common understanding of Jews at that time. <coughs> the Jews believed that God loved Israel and hated the Gentiles. Hated the pagan nations. That God's love was, was limited to the nation of Israel and Israel alone. And they were shocked to hear this breathtaking truth. That God loved the whole world. His love extended to all nations. That love of God is a very breathtaking thing, especially when we see it set upon a lost, ruined, and guilty world, the depth of God's love. The black background of sin makes the bright light of light, bright line of love shine out more clearly. Because it is so dark, the light of God's love shines that much brighter. Spurgeon wrote, When God's love inscribes the cross upon the jet black tablet of our sin. Even blind eyes see that here is love. What was there in the world that God would love it? What was lovable in this world? Nothing. Nothing was worthy of God's love. Only thing growing in the field of the world is enmity to God. Only fruit that this world produced was hatred of His truth. Only thing that this world gave to God was disregard of His law, rebellion against His commandments. Such things and such things alone covered the wasteland of this world. And yet, in spite of our rebellion and evil, in spite of the fact that there is nothing lovable in it, God's response was to love the world. To be God's enemies and yet God loved us. We consider the depth, let's consider the width of, God, of God's love. God loved the world. I mean, there's a debate here. I don't understand the debate. Cosmos, the world. God loves the world. God loves all nations. God loves every, everyone. I mean, I preached a sermon at a church. The pastor called me and said, Oh, somebody wondered if you were a Calvinist. Like, what? Why? Because I, I believe God loves the world. Why, why is Calvinism... Opposed to God's love for the world. I don't understand that. 
I just preached two weeks ago on John 6, the five points of Jesus Christ. I mean, I am a Calvinist. But also, I believe God loves the world. Why do I believe that? Because the Bible says God loves the world. What, what more do I need? Second Peter 3.9, God desires all men to be saved. Well, what does that all men mean? It means all men. Well, what do you mean by that? I mean all men. Everybody God desires to be saved. Well, do you believe in unconditional election? Yes, of course. You believe in living atonement? Even more than you. Right? <laughs> but I still believe God loves the world and God wants all men to be saved. God's love extends to all. I'll quote this passage later about Ezekiel that he doesn't delight in the perishing of the wicked. Turn and live. Turn and live. Jonah's the one. I don't want to go to Nineveh. Right? They're blasphemers. They're sinners. They don't deserve your love. Why do you want me to go to Nineveh? Because I want all men to be saved. I love all men. Where did such love come from? It came from within Himself. <coughs> First John 4.8 tells us God is love. How could He love an undeserving world as us? How can He love all men? Where does that come from? He doesn't produce it apart from Himself. That is an essential attribute of God. God is love. That is His character. That is His attribute. Let's move on to the purpose of God's love. The purpose of God's gift is for the salvation of man. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. God didn't show His love by saving everyone. No, it's a holy love. It's a righteous love. For God so loved the world that He gave His Son, that those, and only those, believe in Him, should not perish, but have everlasting life. <coughs> That's the purpose of our Lord's coming. Verse 17, God did not send the, world, send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be, should be saved through Him. That is the purpose of Christ's coming and Christ's death. Salvation. Finally, let's look at the rejection of God's gift. Rejection. There's two sides to this. God's gift not only reveals the heart of God, but God's gift reveals the heart of man. And here we go from the highest point of God's love, the lowest valley of the depravity of man. It's an ugly sight. You know, it's a, it's a discouraging, detestable thing to consider. There is a darker side in this passage that exposes the corruption that is in an unbeliever's heart. To overlook this dark side in John is to miss the full message of the gospel. Again, it reveals man and his utter depravity. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he is not Believe in the name of the one and only Son of God. So God loved the world. He gave His greatest treasure, His only Son, a meek Lamb of God, without spot, blemish, without sin, humble and gentle and pure and righteous, abounding in good deeds, speaking truth. And what is the world's response? 
and seeing such love. Do their hearts melt before the love of God, the compassion, the affection of God? Do they melt before Christ in humility and turn the city of Jerusalem on a, riding on a donkey? Do they melt before the words of Christ as he, and the works of Christ as He heals lepers, as He heals the blind, as He touches the untouchables, as a friend to sinners? Is that the world's response? No, the world's response to God's love is one of rejection. It's one of turning away. It's one of hardening their hearts against God's great gift. Therefore, God's gift given to man not only reveals God's heart, it reveals what's in man's heart. For example, if we were to go to Europe, into the great museums, and we see together the great artistic masterpieces on display, those art, the art that's there is not there to defend themselves. The ones that are on trial are the visitors observing these great masterpieces. If someone sees a painting by Rembrandt or Monet or a sculpture by Michelangelo, you, you know, art majors out there, you look at that and go, that's beautiful, that's incredible. That reveals what's in your heart. But if someone's there next to you and says, oh, it's junk, I could do better. That's no big deal. I think it's not, not, it's not great at all. Right? That, what you say tells us nothing about the works of Rembrandt and Monet, but it tells us a lot about you. It tells us how foolish you are, how blind you are, how self-deceived you are, how prideful you are, that you will look at a great work of art and you will say it's junk. It tells us nothing about the work. It tells us a lot about yourself. It's the same in the spiritual realm. The man who rejects Christ they look at Christ, they hear His message, see the Gospel, and say, eh, you know, not a big deal. I've got work to do. I've got to make money. I want to have fun in this world. Sin is better than Christ. Right? The pleasures of this world, sweeter. It's more attractive, more desirable. It says nothing about Christ, but it says a lot about this world. He passes judgment not on Christ, but on Himself. He does not need to wait until the day of judgment to find out if God approves Him or not. The judgment has been delivered. He is condemned already, verse 18. The verdict on Him has already been pronounced. There will indeed be a final day of judgment, but that day only confirms the judgment given to Him when He condemned Christ, when He rejected Christ. He is condemned already. If any man will not come to light, the fault is on ent- entirely on his side. His blood will be on his own head. If he makes a shipwreck of his own soul, the blame is on him, will be on his door. The eternal misery will be the result of his own sinful choice. He can blame no one else. His destruction will be the work of his own hand. God loved him was desirous to save Him, and He gave His only begotten Son. But the world loved darkness. Therefore, darkness must be His eternal home. He is, or she is, already condemned. It is not a possible condemnation. It is a verdict that is yet to be decided. No, the verdict has been decided. It it only needs to be pronounced on the day of judgment. And then verse 20, John 3.20 tells us, 
in light of this, the, the reason, the true reason why men rejected and reject Christ. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his, his deeds should be exposed. The light of Christ reveals the pride of man, his humility. The, the light of Christ reveals the, the lack of love in man, the selfish love that man has. All his righteous deeds are, are centered towards self. The light of Christ his righteousness, His holiness reveals the depravity, the evil, the sinfulness of man. <coughs> and this is the reason why men reject Christ. It is not because of lack of evidence. It's not because of philosophical arguments. It's not because evolution and Darwinism and creationism. It's not because of intellectual honesty. No, the reason that men reject Christ and they, 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 spin, they spin this by saying it's for intellectual reasons, philosophical reasons, evidential reasons. But the truth of the matter is, men reject Christ because they love sin more than Christ. The believer's cry is that Jesus is better than sin, is sweeter than sin. The unbeliever's cry is sin is sweeter. Sin is more desirable. I love sin more than Christ reveals that their condemnation is utterly justified. That God is within His righteousness, within His holiness, fully vindicated to condemn those who rejected and reject His Son. Four final thoughts, four applicational thoughts to close our time this morning. Number one, God loves us through His Son, Jesus Christ. Simple. Response is simple. First, response is love Jesus Christ. Will you love Jesus Christ? Will you get out of this religion? Get out of this, even like doctrinal, theological approach to Christianity. Would you get away from this external, religious pursuit of Christianity? Will you move away from that and, and love Christ and have a personal love relationship with Jesus Christ. I mean, for a moment, weigh those words. Christ died on our behalf. You and I deserve to die. He died on our behalf. He was our substitute. Consider that. When the World Trade Centers were both on fire, scores of police officers, firefighters, entered the building and went up those stairs. When people were running down the stairs, Stairs running away from the devastation. They were running towards it to save lives. And many perished in those buildings. Th those who survived, do they not owe a least bit of affection, a least bit of compassion and love for those who gave their lives so that they might be saved? I read The Flags of Our Fathers by James Bradley, account of the battle for Iwo Jima, how a young man, 21 years old, a well-respected sergeant of his company, covered the grenade of an enemy with his body, saving the lives of his friends. I mean, he, he threw himself on a grenade so that his friends might live. Do they not owe him at least some love? Some affection towards Him for His great sacrifice? Well, how about us? How about us? 
listen to this, Christ died on our behalf, motivated by the love of God. Consider the cruel death our Lord endured. It was legalized slaughter of the innocent. Picture Him, flesh on His back ripped apart, countless blows to His face, a nail through His hands and His feet, with no one giving comfort to Him. Behold the Son lifted up on the cross, utterly forsaken alone, forsaken by God Himself, enduring hell in His flesh. And it was God's love that put Christ on the cross for us. Would you love Christ? Simply love Christ. What does it mean to love Christ? It means obeying Christ. That's point two. What does it mean to love Christ? It's to love Him. A friend of mine said, when he was third grade, his mom sat him down and said, do you love me? And he said, of course, mom, I love you. And she started crying. and said, son, then why don't you do what I tell you to do? Why don't you obey me? He said that was the first time he saw the connection between love and obedience. He said, if I love my mom, I obey her. If I obey her, it's a proof of my love. If I say I love her, have feelings of love, but do not obey my mom, I don't love her. That's what the Bible says. John 14, 21 Whoever has my commands and obeys them, <coughs> he is the one who loves me. First John 2, 5 If anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. First John 5, 3 This is love for God to obey His commands. And His commands are not burdensome. Simple. If you love Christ, you will love His commands. You will consider His commands not a burden. Alright? You will consider His commands not as a labor, as a work. You will consider it as a joy. You will break your back to obey His commands. Alright? Cheesy illustration coming up. But, a few weeks ago, you know, my, my new like hobby in life is flag football. And a few weeks ago, it was, it was raining. And guys are asking me, are we still going to play? Man, it's the best weather for football, right? My wife is like, you're going out there, you're 36, right? You're going to play football in the rain? Yeah, why? Because I enjoy football. I don't care. Rain, snow, sleet, thunder, lightning. I want to be out there playing because I, I love football. I enjoy playing. Well, likewise with Christ, right? Is that how we approach Christ? Do we use every, any, any excuse to, to keep us in obedience? Or is it, I love Christ. Bend over backwards. Break my back at whatever cost. Right? All these things, they're not hindrances to me to obedience. My non-negotiable in life is obedience. Everything else are trivialities. Why? Because I love Christ. Therefore, whatever, I love evangelism. I love Bible study. I love prayer. Right? I love service. Right? I love ministry. I love honoring my parents, submitting to my husband. I love uh, leading my wife. I love teaching and, and, and training my children. I love all these things because these are the instructions Christ gave me and I love Christ. Obey Christ. Third application, love one another. Love one another. Uh, this is difficult. Right? Like, yeah, love Christ. Yes. Love one another. Oh, man. Gee. Right? That's a tough one. I can love Christ. 
But this guy sitting next to me, that's ah, doozy, you know. This sister next to me, that's ah, too, too difficult. That's what the Bible says. First right? John 3.16 this, we, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down His life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? How can it? How can the love of God be in him if he has no compassion for a brother who is in need? Dear children, let us not love in word and speech but in deed and in truth. 1 John 4, 8, Whoever does not love one another does not know God, because God is love. 1 John 4, 11, Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. 1 John 4, 20, If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. So if you're sitting there and saying, yeah, you know, people aren't loving me. Right? Pastor James, you need to teach this because, man, people are selfish. They're not loving me. They're not caring for me. They're not, you know, ministering to me. You need to repent. You need to obey this application. Right? We do not give application. I don't give an application so that you might meet my needs for a self-serving need. I give applications so that I might obey. And these applications are given so that you might obey. If you feel that you're not being loved, you need to repent. You need to start loving others. You need to take your eyes off of yourself. Off of your pride. Off of your own selfish needs. And in light of what Christ did, Christ was not thinking of Himself. In light of that, you need to deny yourself. Take up the cross and follow Christ. And just love others. Wash other people's feet. Want, expect nothing in return. They treat me like a slave. Treat me like a servant. Treat me like a doormat. May it be. Because I'm not doing it to earn their love. I'm not doing this so that we might have some relationship or friendship. I am doing this because I love Christ. And I want to honor Him. And do His will. Love one another. Finally, this is our message to the world. Right? We should not worry about evangelism. We should not be weighed down by the challenge of evangelism. Because it is a joy to evangelize. Because our message is, for God so loved the world, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. God's love is offered to all men freely, fully, honestly, and unreservedly. Therefore, we must not hesitate to tell any sinner of his sin. And yet, in the black tablet of their sin, write with white ink the cross of Christ, demonstrating God's once and for all love for Him. That is why Christ came and died on the cross. Ezekiel 33.11 As surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their evil ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die? Second Peter 3.9 The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish 
but everyone to come to repentance. First Timothy 2.4 God wants, God desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Because we have this message of love, message of reconciliation, message of forgiveness, let us joyfully, proudly, boldly go and declare this gospel message to this world who has yet to hear. O loving, holy, gracious Father, we thank you so much. We are grateful to you on this day for loving us, demonstrating your love on the cross, and telling us so perfectly of your love for us. Our hearts are brought low as we consider the purity, the blessedness, the awesomeness of your love that is revealed through your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we understand also that for us, salvation was free. It didn't cost us anything. But for you to redeem us, to save us, it cost us. It cost you, your only Son, You were there when He died. You were there when He was suffering. You were there when in anguish He suffered alone. Lord, may we consider that intimately in our minds as we live in this world. May that truth of Your love affect us in terms of how we live our lives, how we uh, carry on at work, how we uh, spend our time, spend our energy, May it affect us on how we think about others, how we think about the church, how we think about how we approach ministry, how we approach a service in the church, and how we approach our parents and our siblings, and our husband and wife and our children, Lord. May your love, demonstrated on the cross, permeate every aspect of our lives so that in every way we, may, we might adorn the doctrine of God our Savior And the world might see what a loving God, what a gracious, compassionate God we serve by our behavior, by our actions, by our decisions. Oh Lord, we testify of the greatness of your love. All the believers today, gathered in this room, declare with one voice how great you are. And that our desire is to know you more, pursue after you more, so that we might appropriate the knowledge of God into our lives and live in obedience to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.